Hi everyone, and welcome to Brazos Capital Podcast. In this episode, I had a chat with Jackie Vullings, who is a principal investor at Airtree Ventures, one of Australia's leading VC firms. Jackie read history at Magdalen College, Cambridge, where she achieved a first-class degree, a blue full across, and a host of scholarships and prizes. She then worked in the city in London in equity derivatives at City and Merrill, before taking a chief of staff role at a startup, and eventually joining us here in Australia. Hope you enjoy this episode. I certainly did. Hi, Jackie. Welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So you have a pretty interesting background. Uh, obviously, went to Magdalen, Cambridge. Actually, how do you say it? Is it Magdalen? It's Magdalen, yeah. It's Magdalen as well. Just like yours, yeah. Okay, cool. What do you think about that system coming from it? Obviously, most people listening to this will be from Australia and our system. You've probably got familiarity with both now. Yeah, it's really funny because I think the university systems are so different um, between the two countries, and I think it's I think it's probably a historical background, but. I mean, I've, I think I, I read history at Cambridge and um, then started a graduate job in equity derivatives at Citigroup. And I think that is totally unfathomable for anyone who came from Australia. Like that someone could study a history degree and go on to do a pretty esoteric finance job. Yeah. Um, and I really liked it. I think um, the British system and particularly the Cambridge system was, you know, I, uh, I did a degree where I had one hour of FaceTime a week. Mm. Um and my job was to essentially read seven or eight books um, on a particular topic per week and distill those down into um, – I essentially had to like come up with an argument and write an essay every single week and then spend an hour with the person who wrote the book on mm. the subject. Um, so it was a pretty intense and actually weirdly really well suited to my job today. Right. So my job today is to get like dumped into um, – a brand new area, learn everything you can, form an opinion and write that up into an investment paper and decide whether or not you want to make an investment. So strangely, like my history degree is actually really well suited to um, to working in VC and I never would have guessed. But Think I guess about like, reading. You know, yeah. for most people, seven or eight books a week would be quite a lot. But pretty intense. It was pretty yeah. intense at the time, yeah. <laughs> Whereas I guess like the, the uni system here is so much more like people have a job while they're at uni mm. and... It's way more focused around vocational skills. You live at home as well. Yeah, I live at home, which I think is kind of sad. Yeah. Like you don't get the full uni experience. experience. People live at home like really long here as well. <laughs> People live at home <laughs> until they're kind of 28, 30. That's <laughs> true. I still have some friends who are still at home. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is crazy to me. Mm. Um, but I don't know, what's, what, what's your perspective? I guess, you know, you're even closer to the situation. No, it seems like it's such a, it seems like obviously there's two great universities and obviously some very good universities, but there are certain benefits in like that society of going to the top two. Um, and that kind of brings all kinds of issues of fairness and the decisions are made at 18. And they're kind of arbitrary. Yeah, you know, I mean, I always, I always thought there are probably about five times as many people who deserve to get in as do get in, and it's like luck of the draw on the day. Um, yeah, because you'd have to interview as well, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember anything about it without? Yeah, it was really intense. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a – just honestly, um, in retrospect, all they were trying to do was work out if you really cared about the topic mm. and you'd read outside it and you're really, really interested in history or whether you'd kind of just followed your course at school. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that was kind of the course of the interview, but it's it's terrifying because you're 18 and you're one-on-one with like a 60-year-old who knows everything. Yeah. One thing I will say, those people had so much confidence, like probably too much confidence. Like particularly that, Oxford. Yeah, particularly like... Yeah, you've got 20 minutes with somebody and you just assess them based on their answers to that question. Yeah, although that's and kind I, of my job today. Actually, yeah, it is. <laughs> Weirdly, yeah. Wow. It's, um, you know, a founders spend 45 minutes with us and um, 
we need to kind of come to a pretty quick conclusion from there whether it's worth right. doing more digging or, or kind of passing on the that pretty typical like length of first yeah 45 minutes about about yeah. it usually how many of those we you through I probably speak to uh, five or six new companies a week, hmm. um, I'd say, yeah. So, and then maybe of those five or six, one to two would go through um, right. to doing a bit more work. And then really, you know, I think as a firm, we probably meet with about 3,000 companies a year and we probably invest in 10 to 12. Right. So, um, yeah. Very select then. Very select. You must get such a good cross-section of all these industries as well. I could see all the different competitors, all the different people from like adjacent industries. You'd probably have buyers and like suppliers and end consumers of the same products kind of. Yeah, it's really, um, it's really good in some respects for us to kind of go to our portfolio companies and just say, what tools are you using? Hmm. And then go like, okay, chase after those companies. Or um, yeah, sometimes founders will come to us and we have a really good perspective on who their competition is that they don't even know yet because we've met everyone. Um, I met some pretty smart people as well, like all those different perspectives. Yeah, it's 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 pretty um, it's pretty humbling because you know you get to sit there and just learn from the people who are the experts in mm. the industry or the technology. Um, just yeah. kind of sit there and and, and trying to try and learn as much as you can mm. um, from them and not piss them off in, in the process. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's probably some amount of humility you have to have, or people are just going to not like you, in the sense that you're constantly being effectively taught in these in these meetings. I imagine. Yeah, you know, 100%. They're the experts. Well, it should be the domain expert anyway. Yeah, I mean, we're a generalist investor, so like there yeah. is something wrong if the founder isn't teaching us something that we don't know about the yeah. industry. Uh, let's come back on. I want to ask you like, kind of what you're interested in at the moment. So I look at a lot of um, digital health, fintech, and probably consumer are my main areas within of focus, I guess, within the portfolio. I mean, hmm. we do stuff outside of that. Um, but I think kind of... Uh, at least two of those three areas are areas that have been pretty affected by COVID. So yeah, um, I mean, some of them like positively, right? Both, like most of them. So like whether it's e-commerce or um, digital health, both have you know just had like decades of innovation. Um, yeah, in, in, in weeks, which has been it's been pretty cool for our industry. I think actually for tech in general, like the way we're thinking about our opportunity as VCs is we just think the market for tech just got a whole lot bigger very quickly, hmm. and so. Yeah, we're in this really amazing position where um, not only has the market got bigger and the kind of willingness to adopt technology um, has grown, but we're also in an environment where companies want to stay private longer. So we get to kind of capture more of the upside on the way. Yeah. What do you think about that trend? I mean, I can kind of see both sides of the argument. Um, you know, it's, it's easier to stay private and you get to kind of make long-term bets without having to report to you know, public investors um, quarterly, which can be a pain. But then equally, I think sometimes that rig is important. Um, and, you know, you want to give your employees the opportunity to exit sometimes as well. Yeah, definitely. I feel like employees are much better served when listed companies. Yeah. You know, it's common it's, stock. There's no weird preference shares. or You see the most horrific stories of people, you know, firms where they've sold out and then the VC investors have made money, but the employees were kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah it does happen. It's definitely true. I think the, the the kind of secondary market is evolving now as companies are saying private. In Australia longer. as well? Yeah, we're starting mm. to see secondary funds pop up in Australia. Um, and so I think you'll see more um, kind of consolidated companies where when the companies are already a billion dollar company, there are you know employees who are sitting on stock that they've had for the last seven years. They'll get a chance to exit, I think, through to secondary um, investors if they want to. 
Yeah. So I think that's becoming easier, but um, it juries out on, on what the right decision is. Hmm, interesting. Well, particularly now that now that the public markets are giving you probably much better valuations than the <laughs> yeah. private markets are. You know? It's amazing the amount of foreign companies are now trying to list in Australia. It's like really it's interesting. Buy, like there was one that was own oh, no, names, no, you know, it's like consumer credit, subprime, offshore, e-commerce. Somehow managed to shrink this year. Like the best market for consumer credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're trying to sell it here in the market. I'm like, God, I wonder who ends up with that thing. <laughs> Like the oil and gas exploration company and you guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess the biggest challenge for us now is trying to figure out how much of these these shifts because we're in digital health e-commerce. It's probably a lot of overlap in what we're doing. Obviously, in very different companies, very different size. Um, the question is how much of that was pulled forward and how much of that is actually going to stay. Because for us, what we don't want to do is we don't want to have we've got such an amazing run in some of these e-commerce companies. You know, we want to be really on top of the fact of whether or not that's going to reverse in the next year's spending shifts back to you know, travel and eating out. Is that something you guys are thinking about? You see? Yeah, the e-commerce one is harder to, to predict, I think. With digital health, I think it was really a behavior change thing. Mm. So it was, um, you know, clinicians often don't like to adopt new technology. And so they will do anything they can to stop doing it. And then actually them being put in a position where they had to hmm. um, has forced them to adopt tools and and hopefully they've realized the the benefits of those tools. And as a result, like, behavior change has happened yeah whereas you know e-commerce is, is much more you know it's driven by i guess whether or not in like stores are open um which is kind of a different thing and that 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 change may not last i don't know and we're kind of anticipating that some of it stays but not all of it yeah do you think that's probably true the digital health but, behavior shift happens but some of that spend is going to throw back to travel there's no way around it this the australian e-commerce market is so underpenetrated though you feel like yeah, it's interesting on those charts because I look at those a lot in different contexts. So South America and Southeast Asia, where we invest in leading companies, we have e-commerce penetration that's like 4%. Yeah. Or even lower. But then Australia's on those charts as well at like 15 or something. It's kind of pretty measure, strange. That's like, pretty low. Right? I think about, so I moved here from London three years ago. And in the UK, I ordered everything in my life off Amazon. Mm. Like It was the only place you did shopping, really, like, yeah. for like boring stuff. And groceries, moving, you that uh, probably not with Amazon. I didn't actually, one. no, I mean, I lived in London, so you just get your groceries from the local corner shop. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that anything like, you know, iPod charging cable and mm. I don't know, household goods and any of that stuff, trainers, sunglasses, whatever. And um, so it was very strange moving here and feeling like you actually need to go to shops to be able to get things. Yeah. <laughs> it was I don't know, it was really Amazing. interesting for me because actually my partner loved it because he was like there are actually still small businesses here and it's really nice and like yeah. uh, um so i kind of see that that side of it as well you yeah, give up convenience but you get kind of small, yeah. small i miss those british postcodes where basically every building has its own postcode <laughs> and that's like your effective address yeah. i'm so happy mm. here like this postcard covers like bondi turn around or brondi it's useless <laughs> mm. yeah Anyway, so after Mordor, you kind of went to uh, equity derivatives. Whereabouts was yeah. it? I started at City. Started City. Yeah, so I did um, three and a half years at City, and then I went to Merrill and um, kind of built up the the um, business selling European equity derivatives into uh, US hedge funds and institutions. Right. Um, so what are they trying to do? Are they trying to buy calls upside? Are they trying to protect? It's, just... it's a real mix. You'd have people like BlackRock and Eaton Vance doing hedging, and you'd have yeah. people like Appaloosa um, 
buying Eurostox calls on risk in massive size. Uh, right. <laughs> so it was kind of everything in between. That must been kind of fun. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. It was, um, I really enjoyed, I found that like um, a lot of people who worked in flow derivatives on the sell side were very volatility oriented. Like they were, all they were interested in was vol and the moves of vol. Right. And so I found like my niche in. Do you mean this is on, on kind of on the banking side? Yeah, like yeah. all the kind of traders and a lot of the salespeople were kind of from the French lycées and super into the kind of math side of it. Yeah. And I actually found what I found interesting about derivatives was like both understanding like the moves in implied vol and what that meant for sentiment in the market and being mm. able to tell that to, to clients and then also being able to like structure fund trades that were expressing directional views but in clever cheap ways yeah um so, so yeah that was kind of together and go out and find funds that would then buy that yeah essentially yeah. uh i was gonna ask you do you think that was like good like that mostly play out like that's a pretty loaded question <laughs> Some did, some didn't. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's such yeah. a different, like, thinking about the day-to-day to what you're doing now. Like, now you're taking very long-term bets. I mean, a lot of companies, that's purely, like, such a technical part of finance. It was so niche, and I think that's why I left in the end. Right. Um, I felt like I, what I was doing was kind of moving numbers around. Yeah. Um, and it, it felt so um, far removed from the fundamental, like, the fundamentals of business. So abstract. Yeah. If you're training volatility derivatives on a random stock in Europe. Yeah. And so um, I didn't really feel like I was learning that much anymore. Right. Um, and so for me, it was, I just really wanted to understand businesses work. Mm. So I kind of jumped out, went to a startup, went to a startup for a few what years. What was a startup? It was called Listable. It was a um, B2B SaaS. Um, right. It was doing software that, um, it's kind of like your employment software for your full-time employees, but it was um, the software for your, freelancers who you work with regularly so it's everything right. to kind of onboard manage and pay your freelance workforce so you had the photographers at airbnb or the kind of journalists at the economist uh, people Got like it. that well they're freelancers yeah they're all freelancers really? yeah <laughs> or a Actually, lot of, i guess that does make kind of a lot sense. of them are yeah yeah that's interesting i got a mate from who was at my college and he became like a politics editor in america or something he must have been in his like late 20s at the time you think of like these old 50-year-old men like reading The Economist, <laughs> assuming it's like some august, you know, definitive answer to something. It's like some 26-year-old scribbling. <laughs> yeah, I think um, there are probably a ton of Oxford grads in journalism um, all over the world. Just that confidence just right <laughs> with authority about something yeah. you don't really understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Perfect. You know, equity roofs is pretty topical lately because, you know, the market's kind of melted up. So we had a really good August. And part of that was because tech just like, Rip. And it turned out there were two things. There, were, there was about $500 billion worth of call buying from retail punters, um, which generally marks kind of short-term tops. But then Masashi Son, like, it's like, <laughs> I was going to say balls deep. Like, <laughs> like, this guy was buying billions of dollars worth of this stuff. And he's only got like $100 billion or so in his fund, you know, minus 10 15%, whatever he's lost on WeWork. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a pretty big bet yeah. for him. I think um, it's really interesting. Like, I, so I don't know the details of that trade. I actually don't know if anyone, I'm, I'm guessing the people who uh, trade the stocks do, but... Um, Somehow it's got out the notional values. I heard it was like a the, March call spread. And I think the interesting... The March next year. Yeah, March 21. Oh, bummer. I've got a theory that like the market's not going to make new highs until that expires for nothing. Yeah, but I actually don't... So I, I think... Uh, so the guys who run the book are at Deutsche Credit Derives, guys, from mm. what I'm told. Right. And I actually don't even know if the trade was hedged or not. So it could be a As kind of... As in they might not have hedged it. They might have hedged it, and so it might be a vol trade for them. 
Yeah, I, I assume it would be a vault trade for them because wouldn't that be huge? Like selling billions of dollars worth of upside for a bank. It's like a lot of risk with that. It could have been like an upside skew trade where essentially, you know, mm. they were like buying at the money vault and selling upside vault because for whatever reason, upside vault was expensive maybe from a lot of cool way yeah. or something like that. So I, I don't know if it really was this kind of big directional trade that everyone's talking about it as. Um, do you mean from the banking side or surely Masayoshi Son must have been, like he would have been hedging the vault. Well, I don't know. We don't know. Because, um, yeah, so I don't know. If 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 it was um, a directional trade, then even then it shouldn't have. It's Vega if it's out to March, right? It's like it's a vol trade mm. rather than like a gamma trade, like a. Um, yeah. So it shouldn't have had as much of an impact as people were kind of talking about. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah. Everyone became an expert in empty derivatives for for twenty minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody tries their hand at that sooner or later. I think it was two thousand eleven. I bought a bunch of calls, and obviously they expired worthless within six months. It was a disaster. <laughs> Yeah. Financial disaster. I feel like everyone's had Me all of those. Got, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then come less. Ah, I'm not going to do that again. You know, oh, yeah. At least when you have the stock and it's unleveraged, you've got something on the other side, you know? Yeah, I, I kind of did that. Did that. I got it wrong the other way where I used to sell calls. I, I used to overwrite stocks. PA or? Within? PA. So, you know, you own the underlying stock and you sell calls over it yeah. on a short-term basis to try and get a bit of yield on top of your long position. Did that work for you? Uh, no, hmm. not really. Um, I mean, it kind of – I probably made – eight to ten percent a year doing that but probably lost yeah. a lot of the upside yeah especially being like tech stocks that are moving a lot more yeah. than that yeah even, one, but, right? but mean, even trading off. the s&p right like it was um yeah. in the last five or six years we've done it's pretty good talk because i mean like one month core might be three percent or something so it's a lot of money because mm. you only kind of lose if the market goes up more than three percent yeah so from a portfolio management perspective that does sound kind of attractive but yeah. you do get killed a bit because, yeah, because um, you know, the market might be six or seven percent. I did last month. I yeah, just lost a bit. So all in, you're probably yeah, yeah up eight to ten percent a year. <laughs> it's like every time I come across a derivative thing that seems to make lots of sense, you like, try it, and then like six months later, you're back to not doing it anymore. <laughs> I think the one where the stocks people just grind up really um, sometimes people get screwed over on um, not understanding the bid offer spread of like taking mm. off the trade so right. like you know you put it on and you're say you're doing a call spread like you're paying the offer and you're selling the bid and then you've got to do that again on the way out and so um like they don't think about how tight that spread is before they put um the trade on yeah. so they can end up kind oh, of it's even reasonable it like it looks reasonable on one trade but then imagine doing that every couple of weeks for a year like consistently trading consistently paying it away it just adds up some crazy amount yeah so i think it's um oh it's one of those things right like sometimes mm. it works sometimes it doesn't i i th- i think it's a pretty cool way to express direction moves cheaply if you're willing to hold it to expiry with options yeah yeah and i found uh i found it adds so much pressure around the time like a, a random movement a day or two before expiry can totally change the outcome yeah. and so if you're anywhere near the strike the amount of stress the amount of like variance that it brings into like your personal life it's a tough <laughs> one. buy and hold Buy and hold, yeah. I was kind of lucky because I did a lot of derivatives in the fund for the first kind of year. Um, some of them worked, some of them didn't, but I had a long-only portfolio and that just absolutely killed everything we're doing. And the funny thing is, is like we're doing, all the, we're doing all the hedging and derivatives to try and reduce risk, but it ended up costing a lot. <laughs> That's like I think that happened this year with a lot of funds. You know, in March, everyone thought they were being conservative and wanted to reduce risk. And in doing so, you know, caused serious damage to their portfolios. So what was to, it? Like Bill Ackman did a great CDS trade or something, didn't he? He did one, yeah. He got pretty – that was great, actually, <laughs> credit. It was like a credit gap because such a – it's generally a pretty bad trade. Like if you want to 
to hold that thing is like millions and millions and millions of dollars every week. Yeah. But he put it on, it crashed like a wing leg, <laughs> and none of the class. And it's just, it's, it's always like when Masioski saw it, like, you know, these people just pop up. And you're like, wow, I can't believe that guy was behind that. <laughs> Bill Ackman, who would have thought? I wonder what he's up to now. I think he did a spat. Probably. Do you have any interesting, insightful views on spats? Not really, to be honest. I feel like it's been talked about way too much. Yeah. Um, well, it seems like they'll like do a deal and go up five times in the next few weeks. Like, that'll get people yeah, talking. and then like Nicola will come straight back down again. Yeah, Nicola's going to be like such a funny um, story. Yeah, the next yeah. few. I mean, it's just fascinating. Like the whole thing appears. I mean, I don't. I haven't done the work, but it appears to be like complete. Yeah. I mean, he rolled a truck down a hill. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. Um, the, there's a guy called Alex Danko, who I don't know if you read, but he writes really, really well. Alex um, Danko. Danko. D-A-N-C-O. Yeah, um, And he writes really, really well on, on yeah. the kind of um, sociology of tech investing. Um, and he wrote uh, a piece last week about, um, is it okay for founders to lie? And about Good how question. there's this really interesting thing in, in, uh, in kind of early stage technology where, you, as a founder, you almost necessarily have to lie about loads of things because you're selling customers something you haven't built yet, usually. Mm. You're selling investors a vision that you believe, but you have no way of knowing that it's true. And so his question, his um, theory was all around, you know, like what are the acceptable lies and what are the unacceptable lies? Yeah, um, what were they? And um, it was, you know, it, it has to be vaguely believable. Mm. And I think... Um, the funny thing he then talked about was essentially like public markets investors don't want you to lie about anything. And so the Nicola rolling a, rolling a truck down a hill. Um, that is interesting. You know. The funny thing is he probably didn't even need to, it's probably not a lie he even needed to make. Like the Nicola show would have gone on. Maybe he could just CGI'd it. Well, wasn't there a, um, a big short piece came out? Yeah, there was. And that's yeah. when they came out with that. Yeah. Money, those short pieces are usually, they usually buys like nine times out of 10. Um, the short sellers often get it very wrong. But it's weird. Like, imagine if somebody, let's say I was a listed, my firm was a listed company. Somebody got a registered address that asked, okay, where's Fast Capital Partners? I'd probably go to our lawyer's office that asked, where's Michael? They'd be like, I don't know who you're talking about. I'd like add it to their like 0.55 on the short report. You know, it's like you look at it and it's, it's like so many of the things are like that. Um, but what, one thing I have noticed with those short reports, if they're correct, the stock plummets immediately. Mm. Um, often, it's one of those things that everybody thought was true and they just needed yeah. permission to sell. See, our best <laughs> trades have all been very heavily shorter companies. Like Carvana, car company, 70% of the free float was short when we bought it. And it wasn't just, it was like Morgan Stanley. It was like the top investment banks and all the top like famous short sellers and everybody just piling onto this thing. And it went up eight times or something. <laughs> it was glorious. And Pinduoduo was like that. Everyone said it was Tesla. a fraud. Tesla, Afterpay, heavily, heavily shorted. Um they're, they're often biased. I think you can often, and there's good, there's good reason for that. I mean, these people writing these pieces because there's something new and different and novel. And typically there's like a huge opportunity that people are investing extremely heavily um, to try and achieve. And probably the opportunity is so great, they're willing to like stomach huge losses and put a huge amount of capital at risk. You know, and that is actually what makes these short sellers get all excited. So they see all these losses, they see crazy working capital numbers, um, they don't see profits, they don't see free cash flow. So it's almost like a, there's a good reason why the short sellers often attracted to some of the best returning stocks. Um, yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, it's, a, it's all a bet on a potential future that may or may not exist. I think Tesla is like a really good example of that where it's, 
he may have been able to make it work and he may not have been able to make it work. And actually something about like the, the story is what enabled him to hire the people, which enabled him to raise the money, which enabled him to build the thing, which like, yeah. the kind of reflex, re- reflexivity of like his storytelling ability mm. enabled the whole thing to happen. And I think um, there were never any real fundamentals behind it for you know for such a long time. I actually don't really have a an opinion on the mm. the stock either way at the moment. But um, it's interesting. I think it's an interesting story. Yeah, we're talking about um, interviews and that twenty minutes of people just deciding. Fair. It's probably unfair if you're like a nerdy chemistry kid, um, and then you don't get into Oxford or Cambridge because of it. But in your game, it's probably quite a valid test. You know, so you've got forty five minutes, a room full of people you don't know. Your ability to win those conversations is going to determine whether you can attract staff, attract other funding, attract customers, attract customers. You know, sell the sell the business to everybody. It's probably yeah. a decent test when you think about it. Yeah, it is. It is, and I think it's um, like there are technical geniuses who could build the best possible product in market, and and particularly something like the dev tools market. Like you can do that by building the best product and engaging the developer community. The best mm. product can win. Um, and maybe for those kind of companies, you don't necessarily need to be the best storyteller. Um, but for most companies, being a very good storyteller is very useful. And yeah. I think it's a learned skill, right? Like at, at seed stage, you may not oh, have 100%. that. Um, and you may you know, learn that over time. But over the long term, it's definitely important. Yeah, that's not something you can teach or people you think is important when you're younger, is it? Yeah. I feel like I wish, you know, there are so many things I wish I learned at school that um yeah that could have could have been very helpful and like how many people our age don't know what compound interest is Mm. (laughs) it's terrifying yeah it's bizarre i mean those compound numbers always surprise me even when i spend (laughs) my time like thinking about it you get like these short hands like 25 percent a year is an extra zero every decade like things like that yeah like that's what's that's what you can achieve if you do it three decades later that's a thousand times um I don't know, it's interesting stuff. I guess I, I really regret, or not regret, I wish in school that they took creative arts more seriously. And I mean things like media, things like, I look at this podcast now, it's just design, like making a nice website, making like a presentation look nice. Those things are so important. And then also not even just in the professional world, like so many people have these amazing lives, like doing art or doing sculpture, putting it on Instagram. And it's not just, it's not just they're doing, they're making money, so it's great. They're like really good ways to live. I think um, one of the things I'm so excited about in technology at the moment is how there are consumer tools being developed that enable creative people to mm. monetize their creativity it's much like more Canva, effectively. Oh, no, you're talking about the well, I'm talking piece. much more like, um, there's, for example, there's an online, online course platform called Teachable, which enables people right. to essentially deliver online courses in anything oh, and make money from it. That's the one where you, yeah, you make your own course. Yeah. That. Yeah, and there's like Substack for writers. Um yeah. There's a company, an Aussie company actually called Linktree, which is um, enabling people to kind of connect their audiences um, with the places they make money. Um, mm. So I think there are like all these tools now being developed that kind of help these creative people who have built these big audiences on Instagram now be able to actually make money from from what they do and, and cut out all the middlemen along the way. Yeah, a little bit like Shopify's on an e-commerce versus like the marketplace like Amazon and eBay owned the customer, owned the customer data. Um, yeah, Amazon was so horrible to their as well. <laughs> Replicated their products yeah, and sold the private label. Well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's so interesting. That's the other piece actually what you mentioned is the building the audience. How important is that? 
And again, yeah. it's nothing, it's something that. I know, I feel like all knows. the good things that happened to me in my career seem to happen from like writing online. Really? Do you write online? I should know this. What do you write? Yeah, I've got a Substack. Um, really? Yeah. And um, What's it I've called? done a few Medium posts as well. It's called jacks.substack.com. Excellent. What do you write about? <laughs> do you write about tech or is it more broad? Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's mostly tech hmm. related, tech and tech related stuff. Um, kind of, yeah. So I wrote kind of a piece on, you know, it's fintech, it's digital health, it's gaming, it's consumer, it's all the stuff I'm really interested in. And it's, you know, you, you, can it's almost like you're putting your thoughts into the world and then people who read it and are interested in it will then find ways to connect with you right. um and i've like met so many interesting people in the u.s and like the rest of the world just through my writing when did you start that very fun uh probably a bit, like I, i've been writing on medium for a few years and then started the sub stack in january february this year right it's already um, kind of helped yeah, you out in multiple great. ways but I'd say that my mailing list on my phone, like the whole thing's built on the back of the mailing list. Yeah. And like the I don't thing, know any of these people. You know, what's so, um, in the last four years, they've generally come through the mailing list. And what's so interesting about it is that um, it's so hard to do. You know what I mean? Because it's not your core job. The writing or the... Yeah, the writing, like yeah. finding the time to do it because it's not your core job, right? So it's, it'd be very easy not to do it. And sitting down with a blank piece of paper and forcing yourself not to procrastinate and forcing yourself to actually do the work is really hard and mm. so um i think that's the like barrier to entry on the whole thing um, just like forcing yourself to like d sit with the pain of um the blank sheet of paper yeah exactly that once a month for my letter once yeah, a month i think is actually the right cadence that's the right cadence i feel like i think it's something in this, in this especially in this talk about building an audience that regularity is so good mm. you know i don't know i don't think i've yeah, I don't think I'd do one day. Maybe one a week you could if you're really... I think it'd be hard, though. I think it'd be hard to keep it quality as well. That's a thing, yeah. Well, there's a guy, you must know, Ben Thompson, Strategy. Yeah. Like, that's like four a week, that guy writes. And they're all high quality. I mean, he's, he's pretty amazing. Quality. He's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's his full-time job as well. I'd love to know how many subscribers he's got. $10 a month. I'm one of them. plus. Yeah, he's doing well. He also lives in Vietnam, right? Uh, yeah, somewhere in Southeast Asia. Yeah, my, oh no, it's Taiwan. Taiwan. It's Taiwan. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Again, creative skill. Somebody's just gone and created some amazing career. And there'd be so many, it's not like you have to be that successful for it to really work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, once you, you know, if you build a mailing list and you're making, I don't know, it'd be even like 20, 30 grand a year from the mailing list, but then you can do events and you can do merchandise and you can do online courses mm. and you can write a book. And There's a few people like that in Australia doing the stock market game, like, Investing for beginners, kind of stuff, <laughs> and building a thing. I guess it's a fine line where I wonder. It's tough. It's tough. I'm trying to figure out whether retail investors are mass making money. I think they do. And I'm probably on their side. I think a lot of professional investors would think that retail just gets fogged and ripped off. And to some extent, they probably do if they're doing the wrong thing, like trading CFDs, taking <laughs> leverage bet on FX, or buying call options. <laughs> <laughs> it was so interesting all that data that came out that when all the professionals were panicking in March. And by panicking, I mean, it's not like they're pulling their hair out, screaming and carrying on like children. It's like sitting in a risk committee and saying, we don't know what's happening next. Why don't we, uh, why don't we just tone down the risk a little bit? You know, it's not like panicking. It's almost like sensible. It's like common business sense. But that was so value destructive. And then when those limit down days, it was basically these guys who were like just selling and then prices fell until basically retail bought. So I hit levels where rounding people from the street. Um, which is buying. It's so interesting that that's how it played out. So you think it'd be the opposite. You think it'd be the retail people who are panicking 
brand of savvy professionals would buy. So interesting to see what returns come out as for this year. Like, yeah, and fingers crossed that they hold up. <laughs> yeah, the, the old active to passive really gets accelerated at the end of this year. <laughs> I can see that happening. But I guess what I guess one thing I've noticed is there are a lot of people announcing that they're moving to cash and going short, doing all kinds of silly things in March. And now a lot of them are now removing their shorts now. And now it's like, why are you Brutal. doing that now? Brutal. That's probably shorts. It's like once you've got the dragon by the, t- or the tiger by the tail, you can't take that thing off easily. Because if you do it at the wrong time, like if markets drop another 20%, these funds like haven't ripped on the upside. They're probably still down a bit or flat and they're going to lose again um, being fully unhedged. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think it's really interesting because um, even the private markets, we used to pay higher valuations than the public markets. Mm. And now it's just, we're looking at Datadog at 44 times and you're just thinking about Yeah. What was that one that just came out at like 100 plus? Uh, Snowflake. Snowflake. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you have any insight into that sector? What is it? Databases? Do you know, I don't know, t- I don't know tons about it. I know that mm. it's a, currently it's a much superior product to... Right anything else that's out there but that this space moves quickly and so i don't like i've I've not done the work but um the people i know who weren't buying into the ipa were buying weren't because it's databases and there'll be something new in three to four years and see what happens but that is not based off any kind of unique insight it's tough it's like does that technology turn every three years five years ten years twenty years it's tough if it's three to five years, then you can't pay a hundred times sales or anything. Yeah. If it's ten years, probably could. I guess with databases, once you do like it, you're the, net, in. the net revenue retention thing is the interesting part because mm. if you've got one hundred and fifty percent net revenue retention, you're going to grow fifty percent next yeah. year without any sales marketing. So um, that's a pretty special thing if you can make that last a long time. Yeah, definitely. That's something we look at a lot in our portfolio. 130% retention, you know they're just going to grow strongly. Like yeah. you'll get 40, 50, 60%. Yeah, you've got to think so, otherwise they're doing something terribly wrong. Ah, uh, it's a tough one. There's probably not much of that kind of tech stuff going on here, is there? Like new database companies? And, well, or we've is got there? a you few know. great B2B SaaS companies here. B2B SaaS. Like a Cloud Guru or Secure Code Warrior. What kind of things do they do? Amber, obviously. Um, so a Cloud Guru is a, it's actually kind of a, an education platform teaching. Um, training people how to become cloud engineers. So um, how to kind of maintain a company's cloud infrastructure. And obviously all these huge companies have transitioned to the cloud and these big transformations and nobody knew how to <laughs> manage the, a cloud. And so yeah. there were all these people who needed to be trained. Um, like using AWS, Google Cloud. AWS certification, GCP certification, mm. all that kind of thing. And so um, this company is, you know, it started out with... Uh, the founder doing YouTube videos um, because so good. yeah and 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 yeah and him and his brother have built this into a hundred million dollar revenue mm. business in less than five years and um, hundred fifty million hundred hundred mil hundred mil that's a huge business yeah wow. and it's still growing private very Australian yeah private wow Australian. if that came out that would list it some exceptional value probably yeah and I think they I mean they've got many many years of very strong growth ahead of them. How are they thinking in terms of the whole list or stay private? I think they'll stay private for a while longer. Is it just better for them, more privacy, less distraction? Yeah, all of the above, I'd say. They're pretty young mm. as well. 
Yeah, how do you find these things? I feel like there's enough opportunity in the listed market because you definitely see it. Canvas is a good example because that's something that would have fit all of our characteristics in the farm. But by the time it actually comes to market, God knows how it's expensive it will be and yeah, how. Yeah, it's so interesting because it's, I mean, we've been investing in Canva from the very early days. Mm. And look at today and you just think like they've, they've taken a tiny part of the market. What the, you know, they could grow another 10, 100 times. It's kind yeah. of crazy. Um, and on, they've done it on exceptional unit economics. And so, okay. um, yes, it's, it's, it's kind of one of those ones, new generation companies, I think. Interesting. Makes you wonder, like, that's, there's so much value creation once you find those companies that do that. It's wild. It's Snow, you know, Snowflake, um, Sutter Hill incubated that company. And what's Sutter Hill? Is that the name of the guy? Or? Yeah, it's a, it's a venture fund, venture out, fund right? out of the US. Um, I can't remember their exact state, but I think they still had kind of high teens or early 20% ownership of that company. You think that? It's billions and billions and billions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. I think it's amazing that these companies only take four or five years to build. So yeah. four, to six, four to six years, you can create tens of billions of dollars of value in this modern world where you've got these products that can just go global immediately. And now that there's, that a, kind of, there's a B2B SaaS playbook now as well. So whether it's kind of bottoms up or top down sales. What do you mean by uh, playbook? Like the whole way so you build it. So many companies it. have done it before. But yeah. yeah when, exactly. How you issue equity, how many salespeople you hire, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, like how do you ramp salespeople? How do you manage sales mm. compensation? How do you like open up offices around the world? How do you, you know, it's, it's all. There's no doubt a bunch of B2B SaaS companies that like help out with each component of that. Well, yeah. And that was one of the things that we do for our portfolio. So we've got 50 companies in the portfolio at Edry. And mm. um, we. Um, connect all the VP level um, execs to each other across the portfolio. So right. the CMOs are all um, in a Slack channel together and all have a forum every couple of months. And that's the same with the CTOs and the heads of product and the CFOs. Um, cool. And so, you know, the people who are at 100 mil of revenue can teach the next generation, can teach the next generation all the way down, kind of shortcut a lot of the um, easy um, mistakes. Is that part of the pitch to the companies? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. one of the things that we do. That is, do you find that, obviously you don't know much about venture capital, but there must be a point where obviously the really good companies are hard to get investment from and then the companies that aren't so good or compelling are kind of like desperate for investment but no one wants to invest in them. Is that kind of how it is? Is there a moment where it's the, the switch flicks? Or? There's like a top 1%. And, and so, you know, this isn't always, usually it's the best companies, but sometimes it's just the most hyped companies. Right. I think, you know. Uh, venture suffers from FOMO as much as any other industry. Mm. Um, but often, you know, the very best 1% um, will have VCs pitching them, not the other way around. Yeah. And then it just comes down to how good your brand is, how good your Slack channels are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then it's, yeah, then it's all the, all the value-add stuff and uh, hopefully a good relationship. Yeah. Is there a lot of value-add stuff, would you say? So we, we have a kind of a full-time recruiter on staff whose job is to help our company scale like by hiring great people. Um, mm. And we have a comms advisor and we have a network of like senior execs in different companies across the world who we can connect you into. And we've got the forums and we, we, we spend a lot of time on it um, mm. because we think it can be helpful. Yeah. Um, What's the earliest you've gone in at Airtree? I think we've done uh, 100K checks before. 100K checks. Into like kind of pre-seed stage companies. And then right. probably, I think the biggest check we would do would be kind of 20 mil. So it's all the that kind of full spectrum. Really probably from about 200k to 20 mil. Hmm. It's interesting how it's seeing the Australian like, kind of landscape evolve because it's only it's still quite young, right? 
Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, it's, it's crazy, really. Um, I think, you know, Blackbird was 2012, I think, hmm. when they launched their first fund. So um, not even 10 years old, yeah. Yeah, and Airtree was 2014. Um, I think, I'm not sure when Squarepeg was. And yeah, so that, that was kind of the second beginning of this industry after a bunch of kind of failed in the dot-com crisis. Hmm. Um, and now, I mean, you know, there are tons of new funds just uh, launching in the last year or two. Yeah, it um, seems to be there's a lot of new VC funds. I just funds you haven't heard of before. Yeah. How do so you know that? Is there enough, enough opportunity for the, all that capital or is it the other way around? Um, I think more capital leads to more founders, leads to more capital, leads mm. to more founders. It's like a, it's, it's kind of a, a flywheel, which is, I think it's a good thing. I think also there's kind of US money is coming over here quicker. Right. Starting to see US company, uh, US VCs invested in seed rounds in, in Australia. So, um, we also are competing with the Bessemers and the Sequoias of the world. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. For sure. I guess there are a lot of funds that have been launched in. I guess funds, kind of equity to sit game. There's a few really old ones, and the rest are turnover really fast, it seems. I guess I think there was... there's a really interesting thing in venture where um, if you do well at the start and you build a good reputation yeah. and you make a good, few good investments, it almost is like a positive feedback loop hmm. because you have great companies in your portfolio and new companies want to be in your portfolio. Um, and so you get this kind of positive feedback loop where you get to see the best deals um, and, you know, provided you build a good relationship and you invest on good terms, like you get to do those deals. And as a result, like there's kind of a, a good feedback loop to the whole thing. I think there's more of a kind of... Um, moat i guess to it than there is in, in your job because it's like everyone gets access whereas for our our job it's really all mm. about access yeah um, whereas uh it'd be annoying to see the best company not be able to invest in it yeah whereas you know you can invest in the best listed company in the world like that day if you, if you choose yeah yeah so it's a very interesting this- dynamic and we've talked about before like the different lifestyle of listed versus unlisted venture capital exactly we get to sleep at night <laughs> <laughs> He's sleeping pretty well lately. I think. <laughs> we make we a buy- in March. <laughs> we make a buying decision and then just sit on our hands for ten years. <laughs> well, the good thing I've done is basically not um like just not trade day to day. Like everything's kind of thought out. Um, write investment memos for things. Like not stay up and see what the market's doing. And the decision's been made in many in many ways. It was made like months ago, like kind of and years ago in terms of the direction we're going and what we're going to invest in. Like there's nothing that should really happen on a minute-by-minute basis um, that would change your position. I'd love to see, um, we should compare notes actually someday around like how our investment memos are structured and I'd love to see the similarities and the differences across them. Interesting. If I knew somebody like, external was reading it, that'd be different. <laughs> <laughs> I'd spend a lot of time making it good and just not saying to Jackie. <laughs> I'm just going to read this thing. I better like <laughs> But yeah, I think it, they're probably very similar. Uh, yeah, they would be. I mean, how much? You'd probably go quite deep on these, though, would you? What would be? Five to ten. I'd say five to ten pages would be. Oh, that's a not too bad. Yeah. Well, you would know long, longer than the later yeah. stage, probably. But um, that's the beauty. Is like simplifying things. Mm. That's like the, that's like a good bit of work. It's not like the hundred-page memo. But it usually comes like down to one to two memo. questions, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, what are the fundamental things that need to be proven right? Well, do you know what? Do you know what's made life really easy for me is just stop pre- trying to predict things and just really focusing on stuff that was working and then going back like, okay, if this is doubling every year, there must be something going on and figure that out. 
rather than rocking up and just being like, oh, I've, I've read about this company. I think it's going to go great. It's been a huge difference, but you're probably like earlier stage. Do you have that where you're trying to predict what's going to happen? Or are you saying, okay, this company just added a ton of users. It's growing at 20% a month. There's a real difference between kind of seed stage and then say series C stage. And seed stage is you're really betting on a team mm. and a market. Um, you're betting on like, they, these are pretty, these are pretty gritty, ambitious people who have a unique insight into this market. Mm. Um, and you're taking a bet on them with the understanding that like, you know, very few companies at that stage do very well. But if you get an ownership stake, when the company's worth three mil and it mm. becomes a billion dollar company, then you look like a rock star. Um, whereas kind of as you go along, it's making kind of 10 mil revenue, then there are way more metrics. So you can go deeper on um, on all the numbers and let the numbers tell you a bit more. Right. And so you'll probably spend a lot of time in that kind of, these companies will probably got traction, right? Um, or many of them. It's kind of half and half. You know, often they'll have, some customers, and we're really kind of looking for customer love, really. It's like... Um, oh, one of my favorite, one of my touch lines. <laughs> yeah, we're looking for kind of people who um, would never rip this piece of software out, think it's completely changed their business, would rave about it to their friends. Mm. Um, that kind that kind of um, reaction. We, we do a yeah. lot of customer calls before we invest. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the kind of thing we're looking for at the early stage. Yeah, it's, it's probably a bit of overlap in what we're doing there. Like we say, customer love, explosive growth, those two things. Yeah, and we think about defensibility a bit as well, which is yeah. um, you know, how easy is it for someone to replicate this? Yeah, I guess replication is important. I found, um, I found that competition point can lead you astray though because you can be like, and there's heaps of examples of this, which you'll probably know more than I do. Maybe we've got like an established field with heaps of competitors and then one person comes out and just comes out with a better product and just takes the market, like Zoom, things yeah, like that. Yeah, Shopify. Or Shopify, like extremely competitive. But even if you could easily write your memo, talk about all the competition and not invest. Mm. But the whole way through, you could see that kind of customer support, like read the reviews or just even see the top line growth. Yeah. Like that's why I think of all the things I found that the most useful. I think the composition of growth is a thing that we think about a lot as well. Like how, what Competition portion- versus growth or growth of competitors. Uh, the composition of composition. the growth. So it's like, is it organic or is it inorganic growth, I guess? It's like, are you paying for that growth? Hmm. Or is it word of mouth? Or is it kind of referral? Or that's is it, interesting. Um, that's like a Tesla, Apple. They don't really market, right? They never really advertise. Yeah, and like all freemium products really are kind of um, the free product is your marketing hmm. to a degree. Um, and that's kind of the, the AWS costs that you're paying for all those free users are kind of your marketing budget. Yeah. Um, and what you're hoping is that just by all those free people using the product, they are spreading the message. And so that the number of people the 3% who convert to paid becomes a bigger number. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's we think about that a lot, particularly in consumer. If your kind of, um, your contract value is pretty low and you can't just buy what virtual. contract value? So um, if your customer's paying you a couple of hundred bucks a year yeah. for the software, you can't really afford to spend much on marketing. Hmm. So you need to really believe that they're going to be able to grow largely for free. Right. And so what are the kind of loops that they're able to um, take advantage of that mean that they can grow for free for a long, yeah. long period of time? And, you know, Canva's done that really well. They've t- you know, their what SEO. What do they do so well? SEO. They're very, very good at SEO. 
Um, and, you know, obviously variety and stuff, you know, the designs are created by Canva. Um, mm. They've got the, the Canva watermark on there. And I think there's a, there's a bunch of, um, there are a bunch of different things, you know. And I think, uh, think of other companies that have done that really, really well. You know, something like, uh, I mean, Hotmail was the very first one of that, right? Sent via Hotmail. Yeah. Um, Zoom's great because you just send people links and they try it. Yeah. Pinboardo is an interesting one, you know, a company. Yeah, social commerce in general. Yeah. Social commerce in general. It's like is share like, a deal with somebody else yeah. and then they'll share it with 20 people and you just got get all of China basically in a few years. Yeah. Like so million customers. Trying to find trying to find companies where um, you have that kind of reinforcing loop. It's equivalent really funds fun. management. It's probably good content. If you write good content and that gets shared around, that's probably as close as you're going to get. Yeah, I guess so. I can't think of any other one. You'd if you're a fair friend. The Pindoro fresh fail. Get a hundred investors this month. They're gonna like cut out fees for everybody. <laughs> yeah, until you get to the point where you're like, oh, now now my returns are gonna go down by virtue of, <laughs> by the, amount virtue of the amount of money I have. Oh, we're a long way away from that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's actually there's a lot of interesting questions in funds management. Like, first, I think funds are all priced wrong. Like, I don't think anybody's really nailed pricing other than the really good ones, price really high. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of stuff around like capacity, which is a lot. obviously the smaller you are, the more nimble you are. Like our, we're, we plan a very liquid space, like $10, $15 billion market cap. So I'm pretty sure we could have done what we did this year with a much bigger fund, you know, like one or even two orders of magnitude bigger. But if you'd lost that, it would have been very hard, you know, in April to do what we did, which was basically get rid of everything that was slowing down in coronavirus and buying stuff that was accelerating. You know, those kinds of moves. Then there's a, then there's a, the other thing about capacity is it helps you raise money when you limit it. Yeah. And that's like something that a lot of funds like would tell me to do that. Just say you're raising X dollars and then stop there and then tell people that, you know, if you don't invest and it fills up, that's it. Scarcity. Scarcity always works. Manufactured scarcity. <laughs> but there's a reason for it because of that liquidity thing, but it's also a psychological thing really. So spend a bit of time thinking about that. Liquidity is hard in the kind of public markets in um, – the list of markets in Australia, in terms like of just these, yeah, you can you can list really early, but like mm. the day to day trading volume is so small that actually getting in and out of positions can be very hard. Yeah, well, I'd say like the generally the better performing funds are always small cap funds that have just picked the right five, mm. um, and like we know what they are. It's like a zero afterpay app and like maybe like ten tech stocks that you could have bought and done well, um, but yeah, they're they're very illiquid and they do hit a scale. Like you can't move hundreds of millions of dollars around in these things. Mm. I think that's what happened in March as well in small cap land. Like those things got decimated. Like if you're selling like $30 million worth of stock in a $200 million company, like who's the buyer of that? <laughs> yeah. Because there is none. You know, they're just going to go from 12 bucks to $3. Yeah. Till, till that $30 million is only like eight. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> so you just hold it for way longer. <laughs> <laughs> God, I'd love to get a snapshot on the market. Preferably at times like that, but at any moment. Like, who is buying what and why? But that'd be fascinating to just get, like... I always find it funny, the kind game. of... Um, the the way that the media describes what's happening in the market, like the kind of post-rationalisation of, of big moves, and then you find out kind of three months later that there was a massive trade, and that was the actual reason why things why things moved the way they did. Yeah, definitely. Well, how about how bad newspapers are to trade on? Like, there's such good reverse indicators. Yeah. Like, London, New York, lockdown. It's like, that was the market bottom. That was a buy signal. Yeah. 
yeah that was um yeah i remember kind of our internal we have an internal chat at, um airtree and when we were all trying to time our Bottom. buying signal in late march how'd you go microsoft at 140 Microsoft was my was my. Yeah, what was I bought Microsoft a one forty, oh, which okay. was my. What is it now? For some reference, about two hundred. Right. Um, but that was, I think I got pretty close to the low there. That was mm. um, that was the only stuff I bought, which was a very dumb thing to do. Mm. And Voyager, which I don't know if you've heard of. Have you heard of Spaceship? Uh, Spaceship is it's one of our investments. It's a oh, is kind that of super fund. Yeah, it's a super fund, but also has an investment account called um, Voyager, which is essentially kind of a really uh low cost and low effort um tech focused um fund that's kind of an etf really of mm. um yeah like tech bias stocks yeah um and what's really easy about it is you can just set a direct debit um pay five bips and everyone's yeah. happy is that a is that a super thing or is that like a saving thing that's more like a um it's like a, a Robin Hood if it was a, you mm. know, a tech-focused ETF, I guess. <laughs> it's like a millennial-focused app right. that's really, really low fee. Um, it just sits alongside the super fund. It's kind of the same company owns both products. Got it. How are they doing? Are they doing well? They're raising money? And- yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're great. I mean, I think um, the super industry is, is old and not designed for a great user experience. Mm. And so... Um, anyone who can come out with a, a voice that kind of speaks to a younger customer and um, kind of helps people think a little bit more about their financial education and how to think about, um, I guess, investing young and investing mm. early and making it as low friction as possible is a good thing. Yeah. I think it's just such a tragedy how money is invested, you know? Like, think about all the retirees with their banking shares and all the professional managers short after pay. Or how much money is in like industrials and, and just companies that don't really go anywhere. And so like so little Australian super money is invested in like tech leaders. It should yeah. be the other way around. Like you want all your money in that stuff. We've got quite a few super funds in our in our fund. Do you? Yeah. Which is um, But I guess yeah. even uh such a tiny portion of even their, a massive their check balance, yeah. to you guys would be tiny. Yeah, the vast majority tiny, is probably yeah. in like ASX twenty. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um it's better to be in the market though than not. And I think the superannuation in Australia is a pretty amazing thing mm. globally. Yeah, it's a great policy, isn't it? Yeah, nine and a half percent. You go overseas I mean, and you just realize people don't even, like, it's actually quite novel. Yeah, like my husband's company didn't pay him a pension. So he, mm. at 30 years old, had no pension, like, which is, which is mm. crazy when you think about it. Like, I think it's mandated yeah. now in the UK. But. When, I was in, uh, when I was in private equity in London, like every business, like, okay, what's pension liability? Is it underfunded, overfunded? What are we going to do about that? And the whole, often the whole situation tends to hinge on like some random pension thing. <laughs> yeah. It's bizarre. Yeah. Whereas here it's like everyone's got savings and yeah, amazing policy. Also good for me, actually. Most of our investors are self-managed super funds. Yeah. So a lot of people yeah. obviously hit that level where they've got half a million, million, two million. Um, whereas like obviously most wealthy people have their money tied up in things that they're doing like real estate or their business. It just means there's like everyone's got this like liquid pool of assets. It's been helpful. The kind of um, investments in real estate here is, is a funny thing as well. Mm. Like all the funny tax incentives. I about the fact that rent and the interest rates are reversed right now in the UK? Like rent's really low. Like there's so many capital and tax incentives in this country that rents are very low, prices are high. 
It's bizarre. It's very, very bizarre. Hmm. It doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> what do you think? Would you be a steady real estate investor? Like, if you got access to the kind of companies that you invest in, why would you buy a house? If you... Yeah, look, I'd put money in my own portfolio first, but it's also VC, right? So, like, I think you should yeah. have other investments. Um, I don't know. It just, I just like, I think from a um, social policy perspective, don't think it's the right move. I'm probably quite. Uh, the right move to to have all these tax incentives for um, owning residential property and renting it out. So you think it's good or bad? I think it's bad. Hmm. The tax incentives, just because um, I think it makes harder for average people to be able to buy homes. Hmm. If you have people speculating on homes as investments and even losing money on the yield just to kind of speculate on the value of the asset, I don't think that's what residential property is for. But maybe I'm old-fashioned. Uh, I think you probably, I think most people would probably agree with you if they sat down and thought about it. <laughs> yeah, it's been such a long policy that everybody's structured their entire savings and wealth position around it. Mm. So when people try and mess with it, you're going to annoy a lot of people because they're, do you know what I mean? I'm not saying. It's so interesting. Like, I'm just I, thinking like if you get yeah, blank piece of paper, it'd be, you'd be pretty like odd person if you're like, you know what, let's get make sure everyone's money's in real estate. <laughs> let's incentivize people pushing up house prices for everybody else. Yeah. You probably wouldn't do it. But after decades of it, yeah, it's something that I can see why Labor got in so much trouble like left wing here when they tried to kind of change that. Yeah, I mean. you're putting every single person with any kind of wealth in real estate offside and they run. I'm not saying that's good or bad. Just it's going to be very hard to change. Polarised politics is a thing for every country in the world now. Mm. So I mean, conversation with uh, the Uber driver or people today. We're talking about state governments and how ridiculous they are. <laughs> yeah, like country with like no no residents and still these <laughs> yeah. like no so many states. Ever, <laughs> so many states. And you can see like normally you just ignore them. Like you're not even aware that okay, this help is being done by the state maybe. Yeah, it's completely oblivious to the whole thing. But now all of a sudden this year they've become critically important. <laughs> And these like jumped up premiers who nobody even knows the name of are like putting borders up within the country. At least we ended yeah. up in the right one. In New South Wales. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> what a twist of fate. Man, yeah, I thought we were so hard done by New South Wales because they had the lock, lock out. And it's actually, a, it's, it's almost like a straight line between lock out and lock down, you know, in terms of like getting to clubs and restaurants. Oh, right. Like, I feel like that whole like scan your phone, take ID, wait over here, <laughs> 10 minutes. Like New South Wales was going. That loads of practice. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that was what was going to happen. Um, anyway, interesting stuff. Why don't we wrap up there? I think it's about an hour. Sounds good. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Jackie. Ah, thank you. And that wraps up episode 37 of Frazzis Capital Podcast. If you want to know more about us, you can find us on www.frazzascapitalpartners.com and Jackie has a substack at jax.substack.com. So if you found that interesting, I highly encourage you to go and have a read of some of her essays there. Hope you have a fantastic week.